Tertium Organum by P. D. Espinsky. Chapter 23. This particular chapter will be read by my father, Fred Flanagan, who was an avid reader and this was one of his favourite books. Before he died several years ago, he recorded the reading of this book and as we were cleaning out the house, we came across the set of CDs and I thought I'd share it with you as part of a, a nod to the past and a thanks to my father for introducing me to this book. His style for reading is quite different to mine. I hope you enjoy. I split this chapter into three somewhat uneven portions based on content, and this is the first part. Chapter 23, Tertium Organum by Peter Spensky, read by Fred Flannery. Many people think that the fundamental problems of life are absolutely insoluble, that mankind will never learn why or for what it is striving, why it is suffering, where it is going. It is considered almost indecent to raise these questions. One is supposed to take life as it comes without thinking or thinking only about those things which are capable of solution, be it only externally. Men have despaired of finding answers to the principal questions and have given up bothering about them. At the same time, men have a very vague idea of what it is that has produced in them this sense of hopelessness and insolubility. Whence comes this feeling that about many things it is best not to think? Actually, we begin to feel this hopelessness only when we regard men, man as something finite and complete, when we see nothing beyond man and think we already know everything there is in man. In this form, the problem is indeed hopeless. There is cold comfort in all social theories promising us various blessings upon earth. They leave one with a sense of frustration and with a bad taste in the mouth, even if one believes their promises. Why? What is all this for? All right, everyone will be fed excellent, but what next? Let us suppose, though it is very difficult, almost impossible to suppose, but still let us suppose that material culture by itself has given men well-being, Real unadulterated civilization and culture reign on earth. Very well, and what next? Next, some high-sounding phrases about incredible horizons unfolded before science, communication with the planet Mars, chemical preparation of protoplasm, utilization of the rotation of the earth around the sun or of the energy contained in the atom, vaccine, for all diseases, prolongation of man's life to a hundred years or even to a hundred and fifty, then maybe the artificial fabrication of human beings. But after this imagination fails, there might still be left the possibility of digging through the earth, but that would be completely useless. And then comes the feeling of insolubility of the fundamental questions about the purpose of existence and the sense of hopelessness in face of our lack of understanding. It's supposing we do dig through the earthly globe. What then? Shall we then dig in another direction? How tedious it all is. But positivist social theories, historical materialism and so on, promise and can promise us nothing else. In order to obtain at least some kind of an answer to the questions which torment us, we must turn in quite another direction for the psychological method of study of man and humanity. And here we see to our surprise that the psychological method has, after all, very satisfactory answers to the principal questions which appear to us insoluble and around which we ineffectually turn armed with the useless weapons of positivist methods 
The psychological method gives us an answer at least to the question of the immediate purpose of our existence. But for some reason people do not want to accept this answer. They insist on the answer being in the form they like and refuse to accept anything not in that form. They demand the solution of the question of the destiny of man, but of man such as they imagine him to be, and they refuse to recognise the fact that man can and must become something quite different. In man himself there are unmanifested qualities which must be made manifest, and the manifestation of these qualities can alone create a future for man. Man cannot and must not remain as he is now. To think of the future of this man as sent is as senseless as to think of the future of a child, thinking he will remain a child forever. The, the analogy is not quite complete because only a very small part of humanity is probably capable of growth. Still, this comparison gives us a correct picture of the general attitude to this question and the fate of that greater part of humanity which is incapable of growth depends not on itself but on the smaller pan which will grow. Only in a growth, the development of new powers will give man a right understanding of himself, his ways and his future, and will enable him to organise life on earth. At the present time, the general concept man is too undifferentiated and embraces completely different categories of men those capable of development and those incapable of it. Moreover, a man capable of development already has many new qualities for which are quite ready, but do not manifest themselves, because for their manifestation they require a special culture, special education. The new view of humanity repudiates the idea of equality, which does not exist anyway, and strives to establish the signs and facts of the differences between men, because humanity will soon have to separate those who are going forward from those who are incapable of going forward. The wheat from the tares, for the tares have become too prolific in the stifling the growth of the wheat. This is the key to the understanding of our life, and this care has been found long ago. The riddle has been solved long ago. The different thinkers of different epochs who have found solutions expressed in various ways and often not knowing one another blaze the same trail with enormous difficulties without suspecting the existence of their predecessors or their contemporaries who were treading or who had trodden the same path. In the world's literature there are books used as little known which accidentally or not accidentally may be found standing on the same shelf in the same library. Then taken together they'll give you a, give such a full and clear picture of the different sides of man's existence, its purpose and ways that we shall no longer have any doubts about the destiny of humanity, at least of a small part of it, a destiny other than the sentence of hard labour of digging through the early globe, which positivist philosophy, historical materialism, socialism and so on and so forth have in store for them. If we feel that we do not yet know our destiny, if we still doubt and are afraid to part with the hopelessness of the positive view of life, we do so at first because we take together without differentiation, men of totally different categories with a totally foreseeable future, and second, because the ideas we need through which we could understand the real correlation of forces have not won a place in official knowledge, do not represent any recognised department or branch of knowledge and are rarely to be found together in one book. 
It is very rare even to find books expressing these ideas to make them together. We fail to understand many things because we specialise too easily and too drastically. Philosophy, religion, psychology, mathematics, natural science, sociology, history of culture, art, each has its own special literature. There is nothing embracing the whole in its entirety. Even the bridges between separate literatures are badly built and ineffectual and are often totally absent. This creation of special literatures is the chief evil and chief obstacle to the right understanding of things. Each literature evolves its own terminology, its own language, incomprehensible to representatives of other literatures and not corresponding to any of the other languages. In this way, each one limits itself still more drastically, dissociates itself from the others and renders its frontiers impassable. What we have needed for a long time is synthesis. The word synthesis was written on the banner of the modern theosophical movement inaugurated by H.P. Blavatsky. But it remained only a word because the real result was only new specialisation in a separate theosophical literature tending to fence itself off still more from the general movement of thought. But there are trends of thought which strive to fight against specialisation, not in words but in deeds. Books are appearing which cannot be referred to any of the accepted library classifications, cannot be registered in any faculty. These books are the forerunners of a new literature which will break down all fences built in the domain of thought and will clearly show to those who wish to see it where they are going and where they can go. The names of authors of these books are the most unexpected combination. I shall not undertake to give a list of authors of their books. I shall only point out the words and works of Edward Carpenter and a realm of thought which representative is a Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. R. M. Buck. Edward Carpenter straightforwardly and without any allergies or symbols formulated the thought that the existing consciousness by which modern man lives is only a transitory form leading to another, a higher consciousness, which even now is manifesting itself in certain men after appropriate preparation and training. This higher consciousness Edward Carpenter called cosmic consciousness. Carpenter travelled widely in the East, went to India and Ceylon and found there men, hermits and yogis, striving to achieve cosmic consciousness and he holds the opinion that the way to cosmic consciousness has already been found in the East. In his book From Adam's Peak to Elephanta in the chapters A Visit to Ganani and The Consciousness Without Thought, he says, The West seeks the individual consciousness, the enriched mind, ready perceptions and memories, individual hopes and fears, ambitions, loves, conquests, the self, the local self in all its phases and forms and sorely doubts whether such a thing as a universal consciousness exists. The East seeks the universal consciousness and in those cases where its quest succeeds, individual self and life thin away to a mere film and are only shadows cast by the glory revealed beyond. The individual consciousness taken in the form of thought which is fluid, mobile like quicksilver, perpetually in a state of change and unrest, fraught with pain and effort. The other consciousness is not in the form of thought. It touches, sees, hears and is those things which it perceives without motion, without change, without effort, 
without distinction of subject and object, which was a vast and incredible joy. The individual consciousness is especially related to the body, the organs of the body in some degree its organs, but the whole body is only as one organ of the cosmic consciousness. To attain this latter, one must have the power of knowing of oneself separate from the body, of passing into a state of ecstasy, in fact, Without this, the cosmic consciousness cannot be experienced. All the subsequent writings of Carpenter, especially his book of free verse, Towards Democracy, leads to the psychology of ecstatic experiences and depicts the way by which man advances towards his principal aim of his existence, that is, towards new consciousness. Only the attainment of this first aim will illumine for a man the past and the future. It will be vision, awakening. Without this, with only the ordinary sleep consciousness, man is blind and cannot hope to know anything except what he can fur with his blind man's stick. Chapter 23 Many people think that the fundamental problems of life are absolutely insoluble, that mankind will never learn why or for what it is striving, why it is suffering, where it is going. It is considered almost indecent to raise these questions. One is supposed to take life as it comes, without thinking or thinking only about those things which are capable of solution, be it only externally. Men have despaired of finding answers to the principal questions and have given up bothering about them. At the same time, men have a very vague idea of what it is that has produced in them this sense of hopelessness and insolubility. Whence comes this feeling that about many things it is best not to think? Actually, we begin to feel this hopelessness only when we regard men, man as something finite and complete, when we see nothing beyond man and think we already know everything there is in man. In this form, the problem is indeed hopeless. There is cull comfort in all social theories promising us various blessings upon earth. They leave one with a sense of frustration and with a bad taste in the mouth, even if one believes their promises. Why? What is all this for? All right, everyone will be fed excellent, but what next? Let us suppose, though it is very difficult, almost impossible to suppose, but still let us suppose that material culture by itself has given men well-being, real unadulterated civilization and culture reign on earth. Very well, and what next? Next, some high-sounding phrases about incredible horizons unfolded before science, communication with the planet Mars, chemical preparation of protoplasm, Utilisation of the rotation of the Earth around the Sun or of the energy contained in the atom. Vaccine for all diseases. Prolongation of man's life to 100 years or even to 150. Then maybe the artificial fabrication of human beings. But after this imagination fails. There might still be left the possibility of digging through the Earth but that would be completely useless. And then comes the feeling of insolubility of the fundamental questions about the purpose of existence and the sense of hopelessness in face of our lack of understanding. Indeed, supposing we do dig through the earthly globe, what then? Shall we then dig in another direction? How tedious it all is. 
The positivist social theories, historical materialism and so on, promise and compromises nothing else. In order to obtain at least some kind of an answer to the questions which torment us, we must turn in quite another direction for the psychological method of study of man and humanity. And here we see to our surprise that the psychological method has, after all, very satisfactory answers to the principal questions which appear to us insoluble and around which we ineffectually turn armed with the useless weapons of positivist methods. The psychological method gives us an answer at least to the question of the immediate purpose of our existence. But for some reason, people do not want to accept this answer. They insist on the answer being in the form they like and refuse to accept anything not in that form. They demand the solution of the question of the destiny of man, but of man such as they imagine him to be, and they refuse to recognise the fact that man can and must become something quite different. In man himself there are unmanifested qualities which must be made manifest, and the manifestation of these qualities can alone create a future for man. Man cannot and must not remain as he is now. To think of the future of this man is as senseless as to think of the future of a child, thinking he will remain a child forever. The analogy is not quite complete because only a very small part of humanity is probably capable of growth. Still, this comparison gives us a correct picture of the general attitude to this question and the fate of that greater part of humanity which is incapable of growth depends not on itself but on the smaller pan which will grow. Only in a growth, the development of new powers will give man a right understanding of himself, his ways and his future and will enable him to organise life on earth. At the present time, the general concept man is too undifferentiated and embraces completely different categories of men. Those capable of development and those incapable of it. Moreover, a man capable of development already has many new qualities which are quite ready, but do not manifest themselves, because for their manifestation they require a special culture, special education. The new view of humanity repudiates the idea of equality, which does not exist anyway, and strives to establish the signs and facts of the differences between men, because humanity will soon have to separate those who are going forward from those who are incapable of going forward. The wheat from the tares, for the tares have become too prolific in the stifling the growth of the wheat. This is the key to the understanding of our life, and this care has been found long ago. The riddle has been solved long ago. The different thinkers of different epochs who have found solutions expressed in their various ways and often not knowing one another blaze the same trail with enormous difficulties without suspecting the existence of their predecessors or their contemporaries who were treading or who had trodden the same path. In the world's literature there are books usually little known which accidentally or not accidentally may be found standing on the same shelf in the same library. Then taken together they'll give you a, give such a full and clear picture of the different sides of man's existence, its purpose and ways that we shall no longer have any doubts about the destiny of humanity, at least of a small part of it, a destiny other than the sentence of hard labour of digging through the early globe, which positivist philosophy, historical materialism, socialism and so on and so forth have in store for them. If we fail 
but we do not yet know our destiny. If we still doubt and are afraid to part with the hopelessness of the positive view of life, we do so at first because we take together, without differentiation, men of totally different categories with a totally foreseeable future. And second, because the ideas we need through which we could understand the real correlation of forces have not won a place in official knowledge, do not represent any recognised department or branch of knowledge and are rarely to be found together in one book. It is very rare even to find books expressing these ideas collected together. We fail to understand many things because we specialise too easily and too drastically. Philosophy, religion, psychology, mathematics, natural sciences, sociology, history of culture, art, each has its own special literature. There is nothing embracing the whole in its entirety. Even the bridges between separate literatures are badly built and ineffectual and are often totally absent. This creation of special literatures is the chief evil and chief obstacle to the right understanding of things. Each literature involves its own terminology, its own language, incomprehensible to representatives of other literatures and not corresponding to any of the other languages. In this way, each one limits itself still more drastically, dissociates itself from the others and renders its frontiers impassable. What we have needed for a long time is synthesis. The word synthesis was written on the banner of the modern theosophical movement inaugurated by H.P. Blavatsky. But it remained only a word because the real result was only new specialisation in a separate theosophical literature tending to fence itself off still more from the general movement of thought. But there are trends of thought which strive to fight against specialisation, not in words but in deeds. Books are appearing which cannot be referred to any of the accepted library classifications, cannot be registered in any faculty. These books are the forerunners of a new literature which will break down all fences built in the domain of thought and will clearly show to those who wish to see it where they are going and where they can go. The names of authors of these books are the most unexpected combination. I shall not undertake to give a list of authors of their books. I shall only point out the words and works of Edward Carpenter and a realm of thought which representative is a Canadian psychiatrist, Dr. R. M. Buck. Edward Carpenter straightforwardly and without any allergies or symbols formulated the thought that the existing consciousness by which modern man lives is only a transitory form leading to another, a higher consciousness, which even now is manifesting itself in certain men after appropriate preparation and training. This higher consciousness Edward Carpenter called cosmic consciousness. Carpenter travelled widely in the East, went to India and Ceylon and found there men, hermits and yogis, striving to achieve cosmic consciousness and he holds the opinion that the way to cosmic consciousness has already been found in the East. In his book From Adam's Peak to Elephantra in the chapters A Visit to Ganani and the Consciousness Without Thought, he says, The West seeks the individual consciousness, the enriched mind, ready perceptions and memories, individual hopes and fears, ambitions, loves, conquests, the self, the local self in all its phases and forms and sorely doubts whether such a thing as a universal consciousness exists.
The East seeks the universal consciousness and in those cases where its quest succeeds, individual self and life thin away to a mere film are only shadows cast by the glory revealed beyond. The individual consciousness taken in the form of thought which is fluid, mobile like quicksilver, perpetually in a state of change and unrest, fraught with pain and effort. The other consciousness is not in the form of thought, it touches, sees, hears and is those things which it perceives without motion, without change, without effort, without distinction of subject and object, but with a vast and incredible joy. The individual consciousness is especially related to the body, the organs of the body in some degree its organs, but the whole body is only as one organ of the cosmic consciousness. To attain this latter one must have the power of knowing of oneself separate from the body, of passing into a state of ecstasy, in fact. Without this, the cosmic consciousness cannot be experienced. All the subsequent writings of Carpenter, especially his book of free verse, Towards Democracy, leads to the psychology of ecstatic experiences and depicts the way by which man advances towards his principal aim of his existence, that is, towards new consciousness. Only the attainment of this first aim will illumine for a man the past and the future. It will be vision, awakening. Without this, with only the ordinary sleep consciousness, man is blind and cannot hope to know anything except what he can with his blind man's stick. End of chapter 23, part 1